Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We are excited that you came across this message. The sermon you are about to listen to is from our series, Back to School. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. Well, bless the name of the Lord. Someone should be encouraged by that word. We are not alone. David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of evil, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What a word. I'm already encouraged. I feel like I can go home already. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, please meet me in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as uh, we're going to talk some about the freedom of identity and all that that, that means. Um, but I got to tell you what a joy it is to be back here at Hope. Uh, Hope is uh, what a church. What an absolute church. Uh, so if you are... If you're a first-time guest with us, uh, I just want to tell you right now, the search is over. Um, This is where you need to be. Um, I'm trying to figure out how when I I retire, I can just kind of be a greeter or something here. Uh, I absolutely love what God God is doing here. Love the people, uh, both uh, in the congregation, some of you are engaged online, and love the staff. God is putting together a world-class team here, people from all over the place. In fact, uh, I've had the joy of um, recommending a young man who has uh, been a part of our, my ministry for some years, and uh, him and his wife have just moved here, um, and uh, you, will, you will recognize him. Uh, if you're a Cowboys fan, you'll love him. Go ahead and put him on the screen. So that's, that's our new pastor, Ricky Harris, um, Michael Irvin. He looks just like him, all right? So I know Ricky hasn't been introduced. When you see him, I understand all black people don't look alike, all right? Um, but he looks like Michael Irvin. So uh, greet him in the name of the Dallas Cowboys when you, when you see him. Well, we've been in a series just kind of walking through Jesus' teachings on the parables and uh, just kind of grafting from that some incredibly freeing life lessons. And I want to talk uh, what I believe to be just a foundational message that I think Uh, All of us, I know all of us deal with, and I'll unpack that for us here in just a few moments, but it's the idea of identity, and when you know who you are, the freedom that that absolutely brings. Uh, Of course, our penultimate example for this is Jesus Christ, Jesus who who gave these incredible lessons uh, through the parables. Uh, We must not forget that Jesus, um, uh, Jesus was homeless, Um, he he was poor. Where I'm from, we would say he's Poe. Couldn't even afford the other O and the R. Um, He was Poe, single, rejected by most, executed. Uh, When he dies, he's he's deemed to be a failure by so many individuals and so many people. And yet no one, in spite of all these things, lived a more freer existence than Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, his sense of identity wasn't in his marital status or in his bank account or in any of that. He understood who he was. The Apostle Paul picks up on this. 
And that's why I want to divert your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and we're just going to walk through it. I, I think this is just a foundational text that if you're wrestling with what does Christianity look like, you might not even call yourself a Christian. I, I think you, you need to really look at the truths of this text. Uh, if you're a Christian, I think this is a, this is a passage of Scripture that you just need to marinate in, in fact, one of my favorite pastors, a guy by the name of Tim Keller, wrote a short little book that unpacks uh, this passage. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I would highly recommend that book to you. It's been a deep encouragement. But beginning in verse 1, Paul says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, verse 2, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. But to me, it is a very small thing, Paul goes on to say, that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, Paul says, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, verse 4, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord. Who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one's, one translation says praise. The translation I am teaching out of, the English Standard Version says, commendation shall come to him from, from God. God, would you speak? God, we've spoken to you in worship. We have given to you what is rightly yours. But we don't don't want to leave without hearing from you. These people don't need to hear the words of a middle-aged man. They need to hear from an eternal God. And so would you set the captives free? Do it, Father God, we pray. Give me great grace. Stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the seed of your word take root in our hearts, and God, would you emancipate us, we pray, for it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's in that name I pray, amen. Uh, All of us in this room have heard of something called identity theft. I've got friends of mine who've been victims of identity theft, and um, they talk about it as one of the most anguishing uh, experiences that a person can ever go through. We understand what identity theft is. In fact, um, uh, in, in a crowd this, uh, this large, or those of you engaging with us online, you, you, may be, um, you maybe have been victims of identity theft. Identity, identity theft happens when a person gets um, a hold of very intimate, personal information of ours, um, such as our social security number, and uh, having gotten a hold of that, they assume our identity, and because of that, uh, uh, they can make purchases in our name. In fact, some identity thieves have been known to buy cars in our name. Some have even been so bold and brazen as to buy homes in our name. Again, it's one of the most humiliating experiences 
that a person can ever go through. Uh, it's for that reason, some years ago, my wife and I, we've never been victims of identity theft. We, have, um, we, we wanted to get ahead of the game, and so what we did was we entered into a relationship with a company that maybe some of you have heard of, a company called LifeLock. Now, LifeLock has built its brand off of securing people's identity. Um, and so I got to tell you, though, since entering into a relationship with them, LifeLock can be a bit annoying. Because what happens with LifeLock is every time they suspect um, a suspicious purchase, they ping you. Uh, they send you a text message, an email, uh, a notification, and you read that email notification, and uh, it can be reduced to three words, essentially. They're wondering, is this you? Is this you? They are simply asking the question of identity. Now, Hope, I want you to understand that the question of identity, uh, it, it, is, it is the background elevator music of our minds. It is the soundtrack of our souls. Uh, all of us, all of us right now, no matter where we may fall on the spiritual spectrum, we are wrestling with the question of identity. No, we may not ask, is this you? But we may ask another three-word question, who am I? Who am I? All of us, no matter where you are socioeconomically, no matter where you are spiritually, no matter where you are in life, from time to time, it is the soundtrack of our souls. We wrestle with the question of identity, constantly asking ourselves, who am I? There's a guy in church history you should get to know. His, his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived in the early to mid-20th century. Uh, he was a man, loved Jesus. He stood up for the oppressed Jews against the Nazi regime, uh, actually tried to uh, uh, get in on an assassination attempt with Hitler. He was found out about that and sentenced to death uh, in the Nazi death camp known as Finkenwald. While they're in Finkenwald, just days before he's executed, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is wrestling with the question of identity. In fact, he picks up a pen and pens a poem simply entitled, Who Am I? And here is what he says. He says, Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine, but I love how he, in, how he ends. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. He's wrestling with the question of identity. All of us deal with this. Just the other day, I was in Park City, Utah, speaking um, to a bunch of NHL uh, players, um, which is interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm a black person, um, never been to a hockey game in my life, um, don't know nothing about hockey at all. I literally stood up and said, I don't recognize any of you, um, so don't feel bad. And, but they wanted me 
a brother, a chocolate person, to talk to a bunch of dudes who most of them grew up in Canada about hockey. And so, excuse me, about identity. Couldn't talk to them about hockey. Um, it, but anyways, they wanted me to talk to them about this. And so I just looked out at them and I said, I, I, I've got compassion for you all because here's what I probably know about you. From the time you were little and your, your gifts were discovered, you, you picked up early on that who you were was wrapped up in your performance. And so you perform and you perform and you perform and if you do good enough, you get recruited to college. And, and, and you get there but the performance doesn't stop. You have to perform and perform and perform because if you do good enough there, you get drafted. But it doesn't stop there because we all understand, I told them in this room, that really once you're in the pros, it's all about the second contract. And so you perform and you perform and you perform. It never stops. I says, here's your problem. At some point, an injury is going to happen. At some point, retirement is going to happen. The lights will fade. The crowds will dissipate. And you will be left with the daunting question, who am I? My wife's dealing with this question. She's dealing with it big time right now. Uh, we have a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old. When my wife and I first got married, she, um, she was a broadcast journalism degree. She's She's working uh, in entertainment and all that good stuff, and we had talked during our courtship about creating a space so she can be fully who God's called her to be, and a part of what that meant for her was she always wanted to work outside the home. We get pregnant inside of two years with our first kid, and, and she hits me about halfway through the pregnancy. She says, I think the Lord wants me to stay at home. I'm thinking to myself, I didn't hear that word, so uh, you need to go back and find out some more or whatever, but no, 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 I fully supported her in that. And so for the last 20 plus years, she's been a stay-at-home mom, and we're dropping off our, our second child at college, launching out our second child, uh, um, two out, one more to go. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And in two years, we are done. It is finished. <laughs> but this is rocking her world. She's about to get her pink slip. She's about to get fired from her job as a stay-at-home mom. And she's wrestling with the question of identity. Some of you, you, I mean, you went to college and then grad school, and you, you know, you just kind of had this vision of what the dream job would be, and so you you got that dream job only to walk in one day and you literally got a pink slip and Companies reorganizing or whatever it may be, and you're, you're in a season of unemployment, and the foundations of your life are rocked, and you're wrestling with the question of who am I? Worse yet, others of you are highly successful. You're killing it on your job. You're checking all the boxes, and you're realizing something's missing. I don't have the fulfillment that I thought this would give me. And you've come to the conclusion, no amount of money, no amount of job success can check the identity box for you. On and on I can go. We all wrestle with the question, who am I? They mock me these lonely questions of our text is all about identity. 
In fact, if there's one phrase that I wish you could write down in the margins of the Bible, it is, it is the phrase, the freedom of identity. Paul is tapping into this universal question that we are all dealing with, the question of identity. In order to really get our arms around it, you've got to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, in which Paul says, here's why I'm even writing to you guys. Paul says, uh, I've gotten some bad news, and that bad news comes from Chloe's house. Now, if I'm Chloe, i got a little bit of issue with Paul because Paul Paul, I told you this in confidence. I told you not to tell nobody. I told you, but here you are. You done put my name down on a piece of paper for all of eternity to know that I can't keep my lips closed. But anyways, Chloe has given a bad report. And what is the bad report? Paul says, I'm hearing, Chloe's telling me that there are divisions in the church. That there's a group of you that are saying, I'm of, I'm of Paul. We get that. He's the founder of the church. Another group is saying, no, I'm not of Paul. I'm, I'm of his successor, Apollos, the silver-throat orator who can preach the birds out the trees. Other people are saying, it ain't about Paul. It ain't about Apollos. I'm with Peter. Peter's the one who got the church started the day of Pentecost. He gets up and preaches. 3,000 people get saved. Other people are saying, I ain't of Paul. I ain't of, of, of Apollos. I'm not of Peter. I'm of Christ. And Paul is just saying, listen, I'm looking at you. You are a divided body. There's no unity here. Parenthetically, let me just chase this for a moment. What Paul is helping us to see by way of implication is when you and I relegate our identity to the lesser identities of this life, there will always be division. Preach, pastor. I know y'all don't say amen, but I know I'm preaching good right now. When you and I settle for the lesser identities of this life, there will always be division. Right now, we're looking at a divided church. I'm not just talking about hope. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ in America. Why? Because one of the lesser identities we've settled for is politics. We have shifted our identity from Christ And we've put it into a political party and a political agenda. Listen to me. If your Jesus fits neatly within a human category, then your Jesus is too small. We are not the people of the donkey or the elephant. We are the people of the lamb. Jesus ain't coming back on Air Force One. Jesus was on his throne before your guy got voted in. He'll be on his throne even after your person gets voted out. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Some of us have settled for the lesser identities of our ethnicity. We're more black than we are Jesus, more Asian than we are Jesus, more white than we are Jesus. God didn't save us and call us to be colorblind. I'm not preaching a colorblind ethic. God didn't pull a Stevie Wonder when he created me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and a part of that means I'm black. You're looking at a black person. So following Jesus doesn't call me to eradicate my blackness, but it does call me to subjugate my blackness to my Jesusness. My identity in Christ trumps everything. So Paul is saying, I have a problem, church. The problem is, at some point, Jesus wasn't enough for you. You have have relegated who you are to the lesser identities of this life. And because of that, there's division. So here's Paul, and Paul feels a tension here. And he steps right into it. Remember, there's a group of people at the church who love Paul. 
There's a faction of the church who's saying, look, I'm of Paul. Paul is my guy. And we get that. Paul is a capital L leader. Uh, Paul's a guy who can walk into a, a town, walk into a city. Nobody's heard the name Jesus. And boom, a couple weeks later, a couple months later, a couple years later, hundreds of people have come to know Jesus Christ and a church is formed. Uh, he, he goes from there to another town, seemingly almost ex nihilo, out of nothing. Uh, another church gets spawned. He's a capital L leader. He's a serial entrepreneur. Here's a guy, New York Times bestselling author of 13 books in the New Testament. We get why people would love Paul. I mean, there's a group of people who want, watch it now, who want Paul to build his identity off of his successes. Paul, get the blue check on social media, leverage your identity and how many followers you are, how, how many likes you get. That's who you are. Paul will have nothing of it. But remember, there's not only a group of people who are saying, Paul, build your identity off of your successes. There's also a group of people who don't like Paul. In fact, that's much of the church at Corinth. Much of the church at Corinth is like, hey, Paul, they literally said this to him, we don't like your preaching. You ain't no Vance Pittman. We don't like your preaching. You're the Brian Loritz of the pulpit. We'll kind of put up with you, but Vance is our guy. We don't really care for your preaching. And so they want Paul maybe to build an identity off of his perceived weaknesses and failures. We know people like that, don't we? Victimhood is in style. Building an identity off of some traumatic event that I had or what my dad did to me or didn't do to me. Uh, listen, I, I want you to understand, get the therapy, get the counseling. Lord knows I'm a big believer in it. But please understand, your past may explain you, but it does not excuse you. You, 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 you got to be careful to not stick a label on what, based on what some counselor said about you. You got to let what God says about you to trump everything. You are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So here's a group of people, they want Paul to build his identity off of his successes over here, and other people want him to build his identity off of his failures over here. Paul, where do you stand on the issue? He says, here's where I stand, will you look at it with me? Verse one, if you have to regard me in a certain way, here's how I want you to regard me, here's my identity. I am a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. That's my identity. I am a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. Paul is writing in Greek. The Greek word for servant literally means an under rower, an under rower. It's a visual, those huge Roman ships that would sail the Mediterranean Sea. And of course, back then they weren't powered by electricity or gas or, or, or steam or coal. They were powered by scores of these under rowers who below deck weren't rowing according to their own whims and wishes and wants. They were rowing under the command and the authority of the pilot. Not only that, Paul says, not only am I an, an, an under rower, but he also says, I am also a steward. Greek word oikonomos, 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 from which we get the English word economics. The steward, watch it now, it meant one who manages the house, not one who owns the house. The closest biblical example of this is, is Joseph to Potiphar. 
Joseph is the oikonomos. He manages the house, but Potiphar's name is on the deed of the house. He owns the house. Now watch it. Both of these words, servant and steward, pictures an individual who is under authority. And their identity is so intricately connected to the one in whose authority they're under that to see me is to see the pilot. To see me is to see the owner of the house. Paul says that's who I am. I am so under the authority of Christ, so intimately connected to Jesus that to see me is to see Jesus and to see Jesus is to see me. That's my identity. It's my identity. So Paul says, if you've got a pigeonhole me, I'm not my bank account. I'm not the letters behind my name. I'm not my marital status. I'm not where I live. I'm not what school my kids go to. I am not my kid's GPA. I'm not my kid's athletic ability. I'm not whether or not I can even have kids. I am a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. Now this gets gooder. This gets gooder. This text, watch it now, is filled with legal language. Over and over and over again, Paul uses words like judge or judgment. Judge or judgment. Watch it now. If you miss this, you'll miss the balance of this little Sunday school lesson. The word judge in our text, here it is, it doesn't mean verdict. It means the process that leads to the verdict. The word judge or judgment doesn't speak of the outcome, but watch it now. It literally means to be evaluated, to be scrutinized to be analyzed. Paul goes on to really lengthen this by saying, uh, but to me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. What is he saying? The idea of identity is so important because you and I understand that every day when we get up, we walk into the human court of opinion. People are always evaluating us. They're always forming opinions about us. They're looking at what we drive. They're looking at where we live. They're looking at how our kids behave. They're looking at where we vacation. They're looking at what kind of purse you have. They're they're looking, they're always forming opinions. And the reason why I know that is because we do it to others. We look on the outside and form conclusions about others. Paul says, listen, No one's more evaluated and scrutinized than me, but because my identity is anchored not in your opinion of me, but in God, I'm free from the tyranny of your thoughts about me. So what happens when my identity is in Christ? I'm free. I'm free from what you think about me. I'm free from what my mother-in-law thinks about me. I'm free. But not only that, Paul says, but to me, this is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Watch it. Then he goes on to say, I don't even judge myself. The implication is we all wrestle with judging ourselves. Not only are we being evaluated and scrutinized by others, 
We all have what I call an inner lawyer who works overtime. Always evaluating, always scrutinizing ourselves. I mean, I mean, we leave a meeting with someone and we go, why did I say that? Or why didn't I say that? Or, or I should have said it that way instead of saying it that way. And we all need to know the freedom of giving our inner lawyer the pink slip. So Paul says, listen, when your identity is in Christ, you're free from the opinions of others. You're free from the opinions of ourselves. Why? Because there's one opinion and one opinion only that matters. Paul ends by saying, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. He says, work for God's judgment. His judgment is the only one that matters. Why? You see in part, he sees the whole. You see my actions, he sees my attitude. You see my motion, he sees my motives. And at the end of the day, I am playing for his approval. I am playing for his pleasure. And let that guide navigate your lives. I love golf. I hope golf is in heaven. It's just got to be. It's just got to be. Um, we, we understand if you've watched golf on the PGA Tour, you, you know that a typical PGA turn, tournament is four rounds. Uh, first round's Thursday, then Friday, then Saturday, and then Sunday. And in each of those rounds, they move what's called the pin placement. Pin placement is a little flag there that is, uh, is attached to a pole that protrudes out of the green. And so, so they move the pin placements every single round. And Sunday's pin placements are the toughest pin placements because, because Sunday is championship Sunday. It's when you get the prize. It's when you get the award. Now, I should have had this in my mind because one year I got the chance of a lifetime to go to a practice round on Wednesday, the day before the tournament started, at Augusta National, which is the site of the year's first major. And in the sovereignty of God, he blessed me to be able to follow Tiger Woods around all day. So here I am, I'm following Tiger Woods around, and what I see disturbs me. All day long, this joker not one time puts it close to the pin. If the pin's front left, he hits it back right. If it's back left, he hits it front right. And not only does he never hit it close to the pin, he seems to be perfectly content. Well, I remember one par three, y'all. I about blew it. Pin's tucked back right. He hits his shot front left about 50 feet away from the pin. This joker has the nerve to slap high five with his caddy at the time, Steve Williams. And I heard Steve Williams say, great shot, Tiger. Well, without even thinking about it, you know, the etiquette of golf is you keep quiet. Like, I said, great shot. That was not a great shot. Well, immediately, one of the gentlemen in the gallery said to me, uh, young man, this is Wednesday. If you've noticed, all round, Tiger hasn't been putting it close to the pin because Tiger is not playing with Wednesday's pin placements in mind. He's playing with Sunday's pin placements in mind. That is exactly what Paul is saying. Don't get caught up in the Wednesdays of this world. 
This world is temporary. There's coming a point where God's going to say, give me back my breath. The writer of Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. I don't care how much kale salad you eat, you will die. <laughs> Given that reality, Paul says, I'm playing with Sunday's pin placements in mind. Now, what does this mean as our friend silences their cell phone? What does this mean? What does this mean? Watch it. When I'm free in Christ, people can answer their cell phones while I preach. When I'm free in Christ, right? When I'm really free in Christ, what does this mean for me? Let's go home on on these two thoughts. Paul says in our text, look at it with me. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. The Greek word for small is micros, from which we get the English word microscope or microscopic. This word is the superlative of micros. It means teeny, 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 tiny, 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 or as my grandmom used to say, teeny, It's beyond small. Paul is not saying that I'm oblivious to your opinions of me, but he says, when I compare your thoughts of me to the thoughts of a holy God, not even close. What does freedom of identity mean? When when you are free in Christ, here's what that means. People are small, God is big. People are small, God is big. People are small, God is big. In order to help us with this, you need to understand Paul, the same guy who wrote our text, he, he planted some churches in a region called Galatia, came in preaching the gospel. The gospel essentially says that um, uh, Christ plus nothing equals everything. And so here he is, he comes preaching that, that message right on his heels, uh, right behind him come a group of Jewish leaders called the Judaizers. They seek to dismantle the message. They want to co- convince the Galatians that you're not saved by grace through faith, that in order to really be saved, you now have to do the works of the flesh. You, you now have to uh, become Jewish in order to be saved. Now they know that they just can't dismantle Paul's message without first attacking his identity, and that's exactly what they do. They say, listen, you can't really trust Paul because Paul is not an authentic apostle. He wasn't handpicked by one of the original by, by uh, Jesus Christ. He wasn't a part of the original 12 disciples, and so they attack his identity. How does Paul respond? Look at what he says right out the gates in Galatians 1:10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant, there's that word again, of Christ. What is Paul saying? Don't miss it. Paul is saying this, man-pleasing and God-pleasing make terrible co-pilots. You can't do them both at the same time. Paul says, I am secure, not in your opinions about me, but what Christ says about me. People are small. God is big. So I told you, we're dropping off my 18-year-old next week, two down, one to go. And um, man, I'm, uh, I'm not that much of a sentimental person, but I've, I've been kind of sentimental and uber-reflective. Um, just kind of looking through the rearview mirror of my own parenting, and yeah, I know our kids need grace, but man, parents, we parents need grace from our kids too. Um, man, I've, I've just made a lot of bad things. There's just a lot of th- things I do differently. 
I got the eerie feeling that I'll get this parenting thing right, right as my youngest is leaving the house. Um, and so I've been uber-reflective. My, my youngest think he, thinks he's God's gift to basketball, and, you know, kids got, you know, a little bit of game and all that good stuff, and I've been thinking a lot about him, and, and something that I noticed he did the very first basketball game I went to of his. Jaden started playing rec league, organized basketball, around age six or seven. I forget exactly how old he was, and we were living there in a section of Memphis called Collierville, and there was a Collierville rec league that he was a part of, and Memphis is a small town, and I was pastoring in Memphis, and so because it's a small town, I was a pastor, a lot of people recognized me, and so I just remember that first game just going, I don't, I don't want to see anybody. I'm just here to support my kid. And so I go way up to the corner of the bleachers, sit down. And my son Jaden, game gets started, and my son Jaden steals the ball. And I'll never forget, he steals the ball. And the first thing he does is he finds me up in the stand. And Jaden goes, <laughs> like in the middle of the game, he goes, and I go, <laughs> a little while later, he makes a shot, layup, jump shot, I forget exactly what it was, and right after he makes it, he finds me up in the stand, and he goes, and thus began a habit. It got to be so annoying, the coaches actually came to me and said, can you please tell your kid to stop that? Like, we're trying to get him to play, and then right after the first game, Right afterwards, he makes a beeline for me. And he asked me a question. And he, he asked me this question even at the end of his games today, 10 years later. He comes to me right away. He says, hey, Dad, did I do good? Now, I notice Jade never asked his coach that question. He never asked his teammates that question. He, he never asked any of the fans that question. He only asked, hey, Dad, did I do good? It was as if Jaden was saying, if Dad thinks I'm good, then that's enough. I mean, who cares what you think? If, if I'm good with Dad, then that's it. Paul is writing a group of people who hate his preaching, who hate his leadership, who attack him wherever he can. And Paul says, that's fine. If that's how you want to view me, that's fine. Because the only thing that matters to me is, hey, Dad, did I do good? I preach a sermon, Dad, did I do good? I plant a church, Dad, did I do good? Only the applause of one. Is that you? Last thing. What happens when my identity is in Christ? God is big, people are small. But what happens when my identity is in Christ? Let me go the other way. When my identity isn't in Christ and I'm a slave to your opinions... People are now big and God is small. And when people are big and God is small, I now am a slave to performance. I'm a slave to performance. Here's what I want you to understand. It's never enough. 
it's never enough. Look at what Madonna said some years ago in a Vogue magazine article. This is Madonna. She says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because, here it is, because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. It's never enough. I mean, preaching, man, let me, let me just put it in my context. Preaching is like cutting the grass. You cut the grass, well, I don't know if that works in Vegas. <laughs> just go with me. Most of y'all ain't from here anyway, so just think to a time when you had grass. You cut the grass and you can admire it. It's like preaching, but you got to do it again next week. And there are times when I preach the worst sermon ever. And I want to quit the ministry. <laughs> and you realize real quick, my identity better not be on my vocal ability or sermon. It's just. Now contrast Madonna with Paul. Go ahead and put what Paul said up. I love this. Paul says, and when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. I love it. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but the power of God. You know what Paul's saying here? He said, I'm so free in Christ. When I came to you, I intentionally was boring. I didn't come with a whole lot of bells and whistles. I'm not here to impress you. Like Paul's saying, I'm so free in Christ. If Jesus ain't enough, then nothing's never enough. I mean, that's, that's being secure, Ricky. That's being secure. My illustration can't save you. Like Paul says, I, I'm getting rid of all the bells and whistles. I'm so laser focused on dad, dad did I do good? that I'm free to be boring. Where are you? Where's your identity? Where is it? If it's not in Christ, you will never be satisfied. That's not just what the Bible says. Madonna illustrates it for us. It's never enough money. You'll never have enough shoes. It's never enough. But if you have Jesus, you can be broke, destitute, on your sickbed, and satisfied. Because Jesus is all I need. I want that Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Hope Church LV podcast. If you haven't done so already, go rate and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Have a great rest of your day.